So glad you guys are here. My name is Jason Piffle, and I'm one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. Um, very thankful to be a part of this church. Thankful for what um, God is doing here. So welcome, welcome. Um, so like I said, my name is Jason Piffle, and I'm one of the pastors. I've been here for about uh, two and a half years, something like that. Uh, occasionally, Jamie uh, takes some time off, which he very rarely does, and I get to come up here, or somebody else gets to come up here and fill this spot to be able to unpack God's Word for you. Uh, we really love the Bible. We think it's just full of just so many rich things, and um, you may or may not think that, but we hope that by the end of today that you uh, kind of listen and engage this and go, man, maybe, maybe that could be true. Maybe that uh, is relevant for me today. And so I just want to say, just kind of publicly, just how much I appreciate Jamie. Uh, after this last week of, of kind of coming and uh, studying, and I probably say this every time I come up here, study, 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 and I get to the end of the week and I'm like exhausted um, at everything it takes to be able to pull this off. And Jamie does that week in and week out, and so, um, and he loves doing it, which is a huge added plus. So I appreciate him and appreciate what he does for us every single week. So we are in the middle of this uh, series on Daniel. If it's your first time and you're saying, oh man, well I should have came earlier, not a big deal. Uh, actually, these first six chapters are all narratives, are all stories that kind of are self-contained, but they also build on each other. So uh, you can go back on our website, it's uh, cpptc.org, and you can get caught up. They're all on there, and uh, it's definitely worth it. I think Jamie's done an awesome job of really kind of going after these, and uh, it's amazing what comes out of these every single week as we talk. And so uh, I'm excited about this book. I'm excited about the story. About four or five years ago, I spoke at another church, and I was given the passage, David and Goliath. I was like, can, and, then, and now I've got uh, Daniel in the lion's den, and I was like, can you give me two passages that everybody knows. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, can there be two different stories that when you're, since you were a kid, it's like, hey, what stories do you know in the Bible? David and Goliath, Daniel and the lion's den. I get both of them. And uh, both times my perspective was exactly the same. I was like, what in the world am I possibly going to say? And it all comes together. And I assure you, I haven't made anything up. So, that's a, a good added bonus. So, because you get tempted. You're like, well, I'm just going to make stuff up. Just kidding. That'd be really horrible. So, uh, so last week, last week uh, Jamie was in Daniel chapter five, and it's a story of the the writing on the wall. If you kind of remember this king, his name is Belshazzar. Uh, there was writing on the wall, and he made this pro proclamation. He said, "If you can come in and interpret this, you can basically be my right hand man and oversee the entire kingdom with me." That's a pretty big promise. So a lot of people really wanted that, and it didn't work out for any of them except for Daniel, who came in and basically said, "This is what your warning is." As it turns out, later on that night, this impregnable city you know, unconquerable place with these gigantic walls was conquered by the Medes and the Persians. And so that was a pretty major, <laughs> major change of events, especially for Belshazzar, who also died that night. So that was kind of the end of him. And so as we look at history, and I think it's interesting to kind of see how the Bible and what we know about history intertwine. And so as we look at history, this is kind of what we know about Babylon. Babylon fell to the Persians and the Medes because it was kind of this um, 
uh, collaboration of empires coming together to conquer the entire Middle East. And it fell on 539 BC. And the general that conquered the city was a guy named Gaburu. Now, don't even know if that's how you pronounce it, but that's the best I can do. And uh, he was the general for Cyrus, I can pronounce that one, king of Persia. And he kind of came maybe a few weeks later. And at that time, he named this general, Gaburu, uh, as ruler of the entire kingdom. Now, there's a problem um, with our story. And our story starts out with a guy named King Darius. And in the historical record from what we've seen thus far, there isn't any archaeological evidence that says that Darius existed. Okay? And so people who would be skeptics would say, well, then the whole thing's made up, right? The guy doesn't even exist. But let me tell you this. Up until maybe, I don't know, how was it, a few decades ago, Belshazzar, who was in chapter 5, there was no historical evidence that he existed. But now there is. And so I think we're a little bit behind on what we actually know. And if you think about we're trying to find evidence of stuff that's been buried for 2,500 years and trying to find evidence of certain people, it's a pretty hard thing to come up with. And so I think as time goes on, this will be really made clear. And so this is where we're at right now. But a guy named John Whitcomb, he wrote, a, wrote the book on this thing, literally. It's called Darius the Mede. And he argues that Darius the Mede in the book of Daniel is actually another name for... Gaburu, the general. And so they are two in the same. And so I think sometimes when we go to trying to find an explanation for something, sometimes the simplest explanation is probably the right one. So for today, you can just humor me, and that's what we're going to go with, because that's the best I think we can come up with. And that's what pulls all these things together, and it makes it work. And so this new king... Um, was this the king of the city of about 200,000 people. That's how big Babylon was. If you think, when I think about Babylon, I think, well, wow, it's probably just this little tiny thing of a couple thousand people running around with camels. Uh, but that's not the case. It's this gigantic metropolis and uh, all the surrounding areas. And so Darius was put in place at the age of 62 years old uh, to be the, the, the ruler of this entire area. And Daniel at the time, people, a lot of people think that he was pushing 90. I think when I think of Daniel in the lion's den, I think of 35-year-old Daniel, right? How many of you guys think the same thing? That's what's in my head, not 90-year-old, you know, Daniel. And, uh, and so I think keeping that perspective of who that man is, I think, says even more about the story as we continue to unpack it. So, Let's go ahead and get started. We're going to be in this passage, so Daniel 6, like I said. Uh, we actually have these little uh, white and blue Bibles that are in the chairs in front of you. If you don't have a Bible and you want to look it up, uh, we're going to be on page 482. I remember back when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, um, like my first Bible, the thing was like that thick, the study Bible, and I couldn't find anything. So if you can't find anything in the Bible, it's totally cool with me. It's not a problem at all. Uh, my dad and I both had no idea what was in there, and the first thing we went out is got all these little plastic tabs, you know what I'm talking about, and we stuck them on every book, and it's like this, this fanning thing on the end, and that was the only way we could find anything. So I'm with you if you're, if you're, if you're struggling. So 482 in Daniel, and we're going to read this. It should be on the screen. Awesome. Here it is. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, 
and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps could give an account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Well, as I go through a passage and study the Bible, I just literally ask myself tons and tons of questions. I think it's a great method to try to unearth what's actually going on in the scripture. And so the first question I asked was, well, what in the world is a satrap? Like, that isn't like a term that we use around here, but it literally means protector of the kingdom. And so these were government leaders appointed by the king, all right? And normally they were members of royalty or a member of the Persian or mean uh, Mede uh, royalty or the royal house or that sort of thing. And they got this office and they were in there for life. Okay, so this is a big deal to be able to, to be assigned as one of these leaders. Here's what they were responsible for. They were responsible for being the administrator of their providence, province. They were to collect taxes on behalf of the king. They were the supreme judicial authority. So if there was a dispute within their province, they go to the satrap and they took care of it. Uh, they were responsible for internal security, so policing their area. But also they were to maintain an army. So should they be attacked by some outside nation, they could defend themselves. Or if the, the, Pedan, the Persians or the Medes wanted to conquer more land, they could contribute to that. So that was the point of this. And if you can imagine that is what one person is in charge of, that's a lot of power, Right? That's a lot of power in one person. And so these people became very, very corrupt. And Darius knew. He knew that this was going to be a problem. And so then he placed people over groups of them. So maybe like 40 people here, 40 satraps here, 40 satraps here, and then a governor over each one of those. And one of those governors was a guy named Daniel, this 90-year-old guy who's been around for quite some time. And he became the overseer. So I wanted to show you just how much space we're talking about. Here's a map. As you guys would, it's a little blurry. But everything that's colored was conquered by the Medes and the Persians. So if you think about this entire empire divided in kind of three different chunks, that's how much authority that Daniel had over these different satraps, okay? And so... This guy, Daniel, what's even more amazing about it, if you remember, and we rewind a few chapters, this guy was literally a POW, right? So he was captured by this foreign army, taken to this foreign country, made to do these things for the last 70 years, and now he, here he is in a position of power over a very large amount of this land. And so it's pretty amazing. It really required that he be really on top of it. I don't know a lot of 90-year-olds who are just on top, like, smarter than a whip, amazing, like, you know, like, if we had a 90-year-old running for president right now, we'd be like, what? What's going on? But this guy here, I, I knew that would be offensive, but anyway, <laughs> I said it anyway. It just came out, so forgive me. But this guy here is amazing, 90 years old, and he's just going strong, and I think that is really a testament to God's work in his life. So this passage also goes on to indicate that Daniel 
was under the king, and the king loved him because he knew that he wouldn't suffer any loss as a result of Daniel. So Daniel's creating this accountability amongst his area that he's overseeing to where the corruption is going down, which means the king's money is going up. And the king likes that. That's a good thing for the king. In fact, he was so trustworthy, he was so distinguished above, above all the other satraps and the other official that the king had planned to put him over the entire kingdom, right? To run everything, which is amazing if you think about it. And so here's this guy jumping full in. And so I think the ironic part of this, if you rewind to chapter 5, and you remember the promise of Belshazzar to Daniel, the promise was if you, anybody can interpret what's on the wall, you become my right-hand man, you can oversee the whole kingdom. And that's exactly what's happened in chapter 6 with a different king, a different nation, and more land. So it's pretty amazing. It's a pretty amazing thing. Let's continue on. Thus, we won't be here till 1230. So, verse 4, here's what it says. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they couldn't find any ground for complaint or any fault. Because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection to the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. At the high, all the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors, all agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or any man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast in the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. You know, this was the beginning of the plot to kill Daniel. And so their first method to go after him was to try to find corruption in him. All right? What I think is funny is that people who are corrupted always think everyone else is corrupted. You know what I mean? If someone is a liar or a thief, they always think that everyone else is doing exactly the same thing. If I'm a thief, well, of course, everybody else is stealing money from, from the boss. You know what I mean? And that's how things go with this. Tim Keller put it this way. He says, one of the natural ways our sinful hearts justify themselves is to believe that though this may not be right, everyone else does it. Thus, sin always distorts one's view of reality. And people who are deeply cynical about others are often hiding something from themselves. And so I think that's a very true statement. And we could all get sucked into this idea of sin and how it just pulls us in and we just think everybody's doing this. But that was not the case with Daniel, was it? The plan was go after this guy, find corruption. They probably went through his finances. They probably had people like sitting outside, private investigators, checking him out, finding out, okay, where's he going? Where's he going next? Couldn't find anything. So they went to plan B. Plan B was if they couldn't find a way to find some corruption in his life, then they had to rely on his resolve to be faithful. It's a very interesting thing. Because he was incorruptible. In fact, he was incorruptible and he was fearless. 
which proves it in the previous chapters that we've already gone through. Like, he doesn't care. He's like, I'm going to follow God. It doesn't really matter what you say. This is what's going to happen. And I love this quote here by Sam Storms. I think this is probably the best quote of this whole entire sermon this morning. And here's what it says. It says, the only way to implicate Daniel in a crime is to formulate a law that requires him to sin. Isn't that amazing? It's profound. It is strangely ironic that the only way that they can make Daniel appear immoral is by deceitfully exploiting his morality. That's a whole other level of crazy right there, you know? It's nuts. And I think that's amazing. It says a lot about who Daniel is. So the leaders knew that the only way to get rid of Daniel was to create this conflict between the law of his God and the law of the state had to come together and clash. And so they decided to appeal to the ego and the vanity of King Darius. And of course, King Darius says, sure, that's a great idea. Can't worship anybody but me? Let's do that. I love it. Let's go on to verse 10. So when Daniel knew that the documents had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before God. Then they came near and they said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, and I I just kind of listened to their tone in this, O king, Did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, and I just lost my spot, here we go, shall be cast in the den of lions? Then the king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the laws of Medes and Persians which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah. And I kind of hear it more like this. Daniel, he's one of the exiles from Judah. He pays no attention to you, O king. Or the injunction you have signed, but makes a petition three times a day. Like, we're really sorry about that. But this is reality. Then the king, who, when he heard these words, was much distressed, and he set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Just a reminder, now know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king established can be changed. I love that. That's the best part of that. Just a reminder. This is how it is. It's likely that during this whole thing, Daniel wasn't really present. Maybe he was on a business trip. Maybe he was on vacation. Maybe they kind of did some special behind-the-scenes kind of meeting. I don't know what it was exactly. Uh, But he definitely found out about it in verse 10 when he went home and he decided to pray about it. And what I love about this is it's not something new, but rather something that he has always done. I love that in verse 10, he as he had done previously. It wasn't a new thing for him. And so even though... This was happening, and he knew that this was going to be a problem. Daniel's no dummy. He's not naive to think he's not going to get in trouble for going to, uh, up to his room and praying with the windows open, you know? He knows this is going to be a problem, but he makes a choice, and he decides to be faithful to his God 
and not faithful to his friend. And so, like I said, as he had done previously, I, I think this is an amazing term, as he had done previously. And I wonder, as Christians, as people who say that we have placed our trust in Jesus, could the same thing be said of us? If we're met with a crisis in life, or let's just make it on me. If I'm met with a crisis in life, and things are going really, really bad for me, will people around me look at Jason Piffle and say, Jason's response, pretty amazing. He prays about it. He's just trusting in God, that God's in control, and God's at work in his heart, just as he always does. I think that would be amazing. Wouldn't you want that to be said about you? I want that to be said about me, but I think we live in a world where crisis management reigns. I don't know how many times I've seen people go into a crisis, myself included, and what is the first thing we do? A lot, not everybody, but a lot of people. We pray, right? We haven't prayed before what's happening, but when this crisis hits, we definitely pray. We're like, and why? Because it's out of our hands. It's out of our control. We're like, I'm at the end of my rope. Somebody else bigger than me has got to help me. But what it, would it look like to be the other way where we prepare for crisis? If we think that we're not, each and every one of us in the room isn't going to have some sort of crisis in the future, we're, we're just mistaken. It's not going to happen. Like, it's coming. And so why not prepare just like Daniel did? Ultimately, this guy, Daniel, prays. And this rhythm of prayer, here, check this out, leads him to the den of lions. So he prays, and ultimately he ends up in the den of lions. And I think this is an amazing thing, because this really rocks our categories when it comes to prayer. Because when we pray, typically, we are looking for what? Rescue, comfort, please don't let this happen. I don't want to go through this pain, right? But for Daniel, he goes and prays knowing this is probably where it's going to go. That's what the edict said. How are you going to get around that? He does it anyway. And so I think I look at my life and I go, gosh, what is God up to if he's not about deliverance through prayer? I think it's this. I think when we pray, one, God loves it when we talk to him. I think it's a huge thing. Two, it creates a spirit of humility in us. It says that... I'm not God, but he is. And the third thing is, it says that I need help. That's why we pray. That's why we prayed this morning with the prayer, with the prayer team. Because we're saying, I'm not God, God's amazing, and I need you. See, God's not con committed to our comfort really at all. But he's rather committed to his glory. And he's definitely committed to our sanctification. Sanctification is just a big word that Christians use. Um, it basically means that God is changing who we are from the inside out to look more like his son, Jesus. That's what sanctification means. And so when you hear that in the church world, that's what we're saying. And so he's very committed to that. And he's doing, willing to do whatever it takes to get our attention to move us towards aligning ourselves in our lives and our morality and the way we live with what his son did. So why are they after Daniel? What's the motivation? Maybe it's racial. Back in verse 13, it says, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah. Okay? 
Maybe they're saying, well, this guy is from another country that we conquered, and now he's my boss. That doesn't make any sense to me. So it could be that. Maybe it was that greed was getting in the way. More specifically, Daniel was getting in the way of their greed. And they weren't able to skim off the top of all these taxes and line their pockets and make more money. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was that Daniel was such a squeaky clean guy that they just, it just exposed their sin to be around him. And we're like, this is a problem. Kind of like Cain and Abel, same type of situation. Or potentially the Pharisees and Jesus. I mean, who's more squeaky clean than Jesus? Nobody, right? And so Jesus is like shining his light around and these Pharisees are going, this guy has got to go because he's making us look horrible. It could be any of those things. But whatever it was, whatever the motivation was, they were very compelled and very committed to being crafty and tricky. And so they tricked the king. And so here comes this law. This law basically made it powerless for the king to change his mind. Now, I think, this is my theory, um, I think when you've got this connection of the Medes and the Persians coming together, uh, you've got to make a law like that because this person over here who's ruling from the Mede nation may see it differently than this one over here. And so if he makes an edict, everybody's got to follow it. So it creates unity. It also says that the law is bigger than the leader. And so I think this is not a bad thing that this law actually does exist. And so the law is very supreme. And so the passage goes on. It talks about how the men came to buy an agreement. So they had a little powwow. They said, this is what we're going to do. They were watching Daniel, trying to find uh, this moment in time that they could strike their plan and make it happen. And so they did. They approached the king with this info about Daniel. King was upset said his first response was probably to try to find some sort of loophole in the law. They could be like, yeah, it says that, but he's okay because of this. And so he spent all evening trying to find this before they came back and reminded him that you can't change the law. And so the question is, is why didn't Darius just make another law? Can't change that one, but let's just make another one, and we're going to follow the second one. That actually happened in the book of Esther. So if you go back and read that, you know that's a true and that's a very possible thing that could have happened. But for some reason, the king decided that that wasn't on the table because being king and saving face was more important than saving his friend. And more important than saving his greatest asset in the kingdom. And he was willing to throw that all away because of his ego. So that kind of tells you where the king is. Let's continue on here. Verse 16. The story just keeps getting better and better. So then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, got that? Serve continually, deliver you. So, a lion's den. I'm pretty interested in this a lot, lion's den. I probably spent way too much time researching a lion's den this week. Um, I don't know why it's interesting. Uh, but I don't know what goes through your mind. But a, about a month or so, I had a chance, and I know this is sacrilegious to say, we went to North Alabama. And uh, we went to the University of North Alabama, and we saw the lion's den. So it's my wife, Janelle, my two little girls, 
and these gigantic cats in the lion's den, their mascots. Uh, they have funny names for them, but I won't say them. Uh, but uh, that gave me a new appreciation. I sat there in front of these enormous animals, and it put things in perspective of kind of the danger uh, that we're six foot in front of. They look pretty docile, but um, they could take care of all of us in a matter of seconds. And so I began to wonder, why in the world would there be a lion's den? What is the purpose of that? Were they pets, kind of like these were? Um, was it uh, maybe a holding area for lions so that they could release one and the king could go hunt it or other people could hunt it for sport? Um, it could have been that. Uh, maybe it was a disposal unit for capital punishment. Like this is the way we get rid of people as we throw them down the tube and no trace of them after a little while, which is definitely the case in this story. It kind of reminds me of uh, the, I love James Bond movies. And I was, uh, I remember this clip when I was a kid of Thunderball. Do you guys remember this guy? It had all the underwater scenes and there was a scene where the, they had the swimming pool and they were having big parties around it, and the sharks were swimming in the pool. Had a little tunnel that went to another holding tank. And so James Bond sneaks in at night, and gets in a fight, falls in the pool, and the bad guy closes the pool topper so that they're in, inside the pool, and then lets the little sharks in. You know what I mean? Like, that's the image that I see here of Daniel in the lion's den. It's like, they're really cool to look at, but when they sure are convenient when I need to get rid of somebody. You know, that type of thing. Uh, there's a guy named Keel, and this is what he says about the lion's den, because they've actually found some uh, in Morocco, uh, ruins of them, I'm sure, not currently used, I hope. So they consist of a large square cavern under the earth, okay, having a partition wall in the middle of it, which is furnished with a door, uh, which the, the keeper can open and close from the top, that's probably a good choice, uh, and then they throw in food that they can entice the lions from one chamber to the next, and then having shut the door, they can enter the vacant space and they can clean it and that sort of thing. Um, the cavern is open, the, kind of a tube that goes up to the top. And then the mouth is surrounded kind of like a little, like a, maybe like a round wall or square wall, kind of almost like a well type of thing is kind of how I visualize it. And it's a yard and a half high, which you can look down into the den and see the lion's. And then the opening was covered with a great flat stone, which was sealed. And then this opening also allowed free air, like uh, fresh air to kind of circulate down through the lion's den. So regardless of what we think the, the reason for the lion's and the lion den was, we can all agree to this one point. They got hungry, right? So that's the point of the whole thing. And so Darius sent for Daniel before placing him in the lion's den. And his hope was that Daniel's God would save him. And apparently, at this time, because of the words he said, he was very aware that Daniel was devout to his God. All right. So, back to this verse we just talked about, this idea of serving continually. So, early in this story, we saw this phrase, he had done previously. And now we see this phrase that says, serve continually. And this is really the result of a long-term relationship where God is really at work in Daniel's heart. He's really uh, faithfulness. I, I don't want you guys to get this wrong because you can look at a guy like Daniel and you can think, man, as a Christian, I just got to be like that dude, you know? He prayed three times a day. That's what I'm going to do. Check. I'm a good Christian. 
But the reality of Daniel is this, is Daniel was uh, a faithful servant, and Daniel was a guy that had a long track record of following God because he surrendered to God and God worked in his life. God was the one that changed him. Daniel didn't change himself. Neither did Daniel have some great example in his life. I don't want you to think this either. Because we can look at Daniel and say, well, I should be like Daniel. Daniel wasn't looking at someone else and being like, well, I want to be like this guy. That really didn't exist for him. But rather, Daniel was going, I look to the Most High God. The same guy that we have access to. And so we don't have to say, I want to be like Daniel. I think Daniel's a great example, but Daniel's always pointing us to somebody greater, which is the most holy God. And that's what we have to remember as we go through this entire thing. So let's wrap this up. Verse 17, it says, And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the, lion, of the den. Good, we're in the right spot. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace, and he spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish, and the king declared to Daniel, Oh, Daniel! He's like thinking he's not going to be there, right? Servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually, there it is again, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God, sent an angel and shut the lions' mouths. And they've not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I've done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken out of the lion's den. So Daniel was taking up out, taken up out of the den. And no kind of harm was found on him. Because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded. This is where I get. This is the part of the story we don't generally read to our children. And those men who had maliciously accused Daniel. Were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions were overpower, overpowered them and broke all their bones to pieces. That was the part of the reading last week that I was like, thanks, Jamie, for giving me this passage. I appreciate that. So let me rewind a few verses here. We'll kind of talk about this. And so the king's response after putting Daniel in the lion's den is he was obviously upset. Um, he had a terrible night's sleep. He fasted, and when he came back this morning, he was just expecting the worst, right? Daniel, on the other hand, had a much better night. He just lounged on lions and talked to an angel all night. I'm thinking that's a pretty good thing. Like, that would be very comforting to me to be able to be in that sort of situation. And so I wondered as I thought about those two ways of looking at life, and I thought, how many times do we fall in the King Darius side of things, where we're always trying to manipulate and fix everything as our first go-to, okay? And then if that doesn't work, then we go to God, and we realize that God's in control. Rather than, we go to God first, and we pray, 
in humility and we go, God, this is you. I need your help. Very, two very different perspectives on this whole thing. And so the last part of this, as was customary, just like the idea of this is an edict that can't be changed. This is a law that is unchangeable. There was also this other thing that we don't talk about a lot, that if you were falsely accused, then you got the punishment of the person that you're accusing. Y'all get that? That might actually work in our day and age. I'm not sure. Probably don't need to throw anybody in the lion's den, but other things. And so just to prove in this story that the, lives, the lions weren't conveniently not hungry or too old and decrepit, they were just like lounging around and weren't motivated to eat anything or people, the story goes on to say that these people were thrown in the lion's den and they were instantly devoured. I think it says what the miracle is. There isn't some rational explanation otherwise. Does that make sense, everybody? Now, I think there was an ulterior motive. I think had Darius only killed the satraps and not their family, I think he'd be worried about retribution coming back in 20, 30 years and revenge. And so I think he was trying to protect himself. Another ego move, if I may add. So let's rewind even further to something that's way more important than that. Can you see the parallels in this passage with Jesus? Is there anything in this passage when you look at it and you're like, that sounds familiar. I think I've heard that somewhere. Let me point a few out for you. First, Daniel was unjustly hated by the civic leaders around him. Jesus was unjustly hated by the Pharisees and the religious leaders around him. You see the connection? Second one, Daniel did not protest this injustice. It was very unjust that this whole thing happened. He didn't say a word. Jesus was accused, perfect man, never did anything wrong ever in his entire life. And he could have stood there and said, no, that's not true. No, that's not true. No, that's not true. That's not who I am. That's not the truth. But he said nothing. Third one, you have a weak ruler, Darius, who's more concerned about saving face than he is doing the right thing. Sound a lot like Pontius Pilate, right? You have a weak ruler who's more concerned about saving face and not having blood on his hands than he is protecting an innocent man. Don't you think it's interesting that there was a stone that was rolled over to the entrance, over the top of the entrance, and sealed, right? So that nobody could go in and manipulate what was happening underneath the stone. That sounds familiar, right? That's in Matthew 27, 66. It says, so they went and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Here's the last one. And so the stone at the end was rolled away and Daniel comes forth alive and unscathed. The stone is rolled away from the tomb and Jesus is resurrected, conqueror of our sin and safe and alive. I looked at all that and I was amazed by these connections. But I don't want you to think that Daniel and Jesus are here the same because they're not. Jesus is the faithful one who actually dies. Daniel didn't die. In fact, he dies, he lays his life down in faithfulness to God 
for the payment of sins for us. Very different person. Very different. There was no angel to comfort Jesus while this thing was happening. There was nobody who was coming in to save the day and like pull him off the cross. He endured it, the whole thing. And when he died, he was separated from God, which is hell. So many times we think, and there's, there's stuff like this. I mean, hell is like a place of punishment. But the thing that, the reason it's punishment is because we can't be with God. We're separated from him forever. That's what hell really is. That's the greater loss for people who don't have a relationship with Jesus. You don't ever get to be with them, ever. And so Jesus experienced that separation for three days while he was dead. And then he rose from the dead. You see, my salvation and my relationship with God doesn't rely on being like Daniel, thankfully, my relationship with Jesus relies really on one thing, that God loves me so much that he would send his son to die for me, to overcome sin, to be resurrected, to provide a, a reconnection and a relationship between him and me. That's huge. That's huge. And God also says that he will be absolutely loyal to us and that he will continue to grow us, to sanctify us, right? But it's God who does that. Now, I don't want you to think that there's no room for spiritual disciplines. I don't want you to think that, okay, Jason's saying you don't have to read your Bible. You don't have to do anything like that or go to church. Like next week, this place is going to be totally empty. Like I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is if we do those things, Simply to earn God's approval, we're not earning his approval at all. Because within Jesus, within a relationship with him, we are already approved. And the things that we choose to do every day in life, if we choose to pray three times a day or ten times or one time, or if we choose to read our Bible, we do those because Jesus loves us so much, we want to get to know him more. And we want our lives to be surrendered to him more. So it's a responsive thing to Christ and to who he is. Much like King Darius in these last verses. Here's what he says. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and language that dwell on all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and to fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. And so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. You see, Daniel was faithful because God was at work in him. And Daniel was humble and responded to God's faithfulness. It was the Holy Spirit working in him that changed him, not his disciplines. Does it make sense to everybody? I want to make sure that's very, very clear. Because you can go away thinking, I hate all those things, and that's not at all. But we do those in response to a God who loves us so much, we can't help 
but to pursue him because we want to get to know him. So why did Daniel pray? Why should we pray? I think prayer, like I said earlier, is really all about humility. Our prayers really communicate that God is so glorious and that we just need him. That's why we pray. Think about every time you've ever prayed in your entire life. Does it not fit underneath one of those categories? I was trying to figure out an exception to that. I couldn't couldn't think of any. And maybe you're smarter than me and you can figure it out. But I think those are extremely important. And it puts things in perspective because it makes us a servant to the most high God. And it's God the one, is the one who does all the work. You see, this is where the great work of God happens. When we talk about the gospel at work in our lives, when we talk about preaching the gospel to ourselves, we're basically saying live a life of humility where you understand you are not the center of the universe, that God is and you need him. Every day. You get up, that's what you tell yourself. That's what it means to preach the gospel to yourself. I need Jesus. I I need him to save me, and I need him to sanctify me. And I think that's what changes Daniel, and I think that is what changes us. I'm sure Daniel wasn't a perfect guy, just like we are not perfect. But it does say that he served continually, and he did these things as he did before. And so I wonder if our lives could look like that. A bunch of people in humility that are bowing down to the God of the universe who loves us so much to follow him. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O. S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.